You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the I Dig It Podcast. A podcast where we talk about the student perspective of navigating the world of archaeology and anthropology. I'm your host, Michaela, And I'm your host, Alyssa. Welcome here to today's episode. We have Angelo... How do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> uh, it's Robledo. Robledo. We have Angel Robledo here. Welcome. Welcome. Good to have you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So we connected with Angelo because he submitted a bunch of photos to our I Dig It podcast Instagram feature. And his little bios that he had in those sounded really cool. So we reached out and wanted to know more about his experience. And here he is. Here I am. Yeah, it's, uh, I've been a fan of, of your podcast for a bit. Uh, it's been so cool to learn or hear more about kind of the academia route uh, in archaeology from the student perspective. And it's honestly helped me and kind of given me some more insights into what I want to do or where I want to go to grad school after uh, graduating. And your Discord is a lot of fun as well. So uh, super excited uh-huh. to be on. Awesome. Thank you. So tell us, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, where you are, what's your program, that sort of stuff. So I am in my fourth year of my undergraduate degree. I'm double majoring in anthropology and philosophy at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. And I, within that, uh, you know, focusing on archaeology, obviously, after being on this podcast, I'm not a linguist or <laughs> a cultural anthropologist, but I've been interested in archaeology since I was in kindergarten and kind of told my parents then that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life and actually stuck with it. And, and uh, here I am. So it's kind of been a fun ride. It's changed a little bit. There's times I wanted to do other things, but for whatever reason, I always came back around to archaeology and uh, specifically, like experimental archaeology has been really fascinating for me. So I had a great opportunity to get in touch with an experimental archaeologist at the university I go to when I was in high school, and that kind of helped guide me into the decision to go there uh, and work with her and some of her grad students in her lab and do some experimental work there, uh, along with my own kind of side projects with atlatls and flint mapping and other, other stuff that I do. Uh, so that's kind of where I am right now, uh, hopefully graduating, well, not hopefully, I am graduating uh, soon, <laughs> and then hopefully going to grad school afterwards, uh, but I, though I might take a take a gap year in between undergrad and grad school. That's awesome. Yeah. I think I'm a big believer in gap years, so it gives you, yeah, it gives you like <laughs> a, a chance to figure out what you want to do with your life. I don't think Michaela did gap year, but I did before master's program I mean I technically had like a whole semester in between because I was done in like the fall semester but I was already like applied to and accepted to the master's program so I was just working Mm -hmm. oh that's super awesome that's pretty yeah pretty lucky (laughs) do you have any idea of like what sort of program you're looking for for grad school uh so I'm kind of gone back and forth a little bit uh, for the longest time, I was pretty set on like the hardcore academia route, immediately go master's, PhD. But I kind of fell out of favor with that in, in the last probably year and instead really want to pursue something that allows me to engage with public communication and science outreach a lot more. So I think the new plan 
hopefully is a career in education somehow. Um, maybe even museum education would be kind of the, the, the dream because I think it combines the best of everything that I'm interested in. Uh, and particularly there are some experimental archaeology master's programs in, uh, in Europe that I would be really interested in, specifically at uh, University College of Dublin. Uh, so there's some really interesting programs there, and they have amazing facilities. The CMAC facility, the I think that's their acronym for it, if I remember correctly. Um, but it's kind of just like this section of forest where they do a lot of experimental archaeology work, and they build uh, structures and do kind of large-scale projects that you wouldn't be able to do almost anywhere else because you don't have the the space to do to do them. Uh, so those kind of programs really interest me. Plus, I kind of like these almost modular aspects of the European master's programs, so where it's a lot of like one year master's and very specific focuses. Uh, mm -hmm. So, hopefully, I can do something in so much archaeology and then maybe museum studies or education, uh, and then hopefully go into that career afterwards. But we'll see. I have a, a lot of time ahead of me before I can <laughs> get there. <laughs> yeah, our. University of York for our master's program had an experimental archaeology department also, and they had a big plot of land on campus where they would do various experiments. I never got, did you ever get to go there, Michaela? I never got no. to. I, I walked right by next it. to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they, I think, I think they call it the year center. Uh, yeah. I definitely looked into mm -hmm. that as well. And it's super awesome. So yeah, both of those schools have really, really incredible experimental archaeology programs. Amazing. Well, we can put you in contact with some of our experimental archaeology if you're interested. <laughs> that would be pretty amazing, especially, like I said, I was starting the grad school <laughs> application process, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. so it's, it's coming up. Mm -hmm. We had one of our classmates on the podcast super early, I think Jessie. one of the first five episodes. Yeah, Jessie, she did experimental archaeology and her dissertation was on making ancient cider mm -hmm. from apples. Like, <laughs> yeah, like little crab apples. I remember really, really enjoying that, that episode early on in, uh, in the podcast. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is exactly what I want to do and where I want to go. So that's kind of kind of perfect. But yeah. Uh, yeah, those kind of, I mean, I just love the hands-on aspect of, of experimental archaeology mm -hmm. Uh, it's so, I think I, I, I kind of just get transported a little bit more and it feels yeah. a little more immersive where you can really experience like, okay, well, how hard is it to flint map something uh, like very this? Very hard. And, and, <laughs> yeah, very unbelievably difficult. Oh, you don't just like <laughs> stick one thing to another and it makes something? Just like you just hit it once? <sighs> yeah, it's just crazy. It, it, it really is wild and it, you just have so much more and appreciation bloody. for, and bloody, yeah. <laughs> so appreciation for kind of the, the genius uh, of of the early hominids who figured this out. It's kind of incredible that that through trial and error they were able to develop uh, these really really complex tools that we that, that not we but but a lot of society considers you know primitive or simplistic. And it's like no, if you actually try to do it yourself, you realize it's a lot harder than you think. <laughs> like to see you make it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I know. In that time with those, with what's successful to you, what got you interested in experimental archaeology, specifically the atlatls? <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, have, I figured that would come up at some point. So, well, like I said, I got into archaeology in kindergarten, and I think 
I kind of immediately gravitated towards experimental archaeology. So what happened was I had read like a historical fiction book about life in ancient Egypt and my elementary school librarian uh, turned me on to nonfiction books or, you know, information books written for children about uh, more, you know, realistic real life stuff. And that kind of sent me down a rabbit hole because I was a really big reader as a kid. So I spent probably two or three years doing nothing but reading just Egyptology type stuff and, and watching Egyptology programs. And I had a, a family friend who bought a box set of some Egyptology DVD, like documentary type stuff. And in one of these documentaries, they had an experimental archeologist talk about reconstructing uh, Egyptian composite bows and uh, e Egyptian kopeshes, which are the most curved sickle swords. Mm -hmm. And that was, I was, I think it was in first grade, first or second grade. And I was just immediately like, that is so cool. Like this person's job is to recreate and test old weapons and tools. Like that, that, that seems like the coolest possible career path anyone could ever have. <laughs> and at that moment, I kind of was just set on it. I kind of branched away from, from Egyptology and, and started reading about other uh, periods in history or other peoples around the world. And at some point there was, I, I think I want to say it was like third or fourth grade. It was just in social studies class in a textbook about Nevada history. There was some blurb in the margin that just said Native Americans in the American Southwest used a tool called an atlatl to hunt bighorn sheep in their area. And that's all it said. It was just a tiny little blurb, didn't have a picture, didn't have uh, an explanation of what exactly an atlatl was or how it worked. And for whatever reason, I was just fixated on it and I could not, I, I could not pass up. I was like, I need to know what this thing is. So that started me on uh, a quest to research it. And came across, you know, pictures and videos and explanations of the atlatl. And for whatever reason, I was just obsessed. I couldn't get enough. I had kind of gotten into other weapons in the past and I'd built my own trebuchets and catapults in my backyard and done archery and fencing and stuff like that. But nothing caught my attention as much as, as the atlatl did. So I kind of set out, like, I really want to learn more about this. So I just started reading as much as I could and didn't actually end up making or throwing an atlatl uh, until a couple of years later, probably because my parents were like, you know, at 10 years old, might be a, yeah, it might be a bad idea to let our 10 year old make uh, spear throwing weapons in the back or in the garage. So <laughs> that kind of got put off until I was in middle school. And yeah, so I started, I, I made my first atlatl uh, out of a two by four and some wooden dowels with duct tape fletchings and started throwing and never stopped throwing. So a couple through high school, I kind of upgraded my, my kit and started building and making more legitimate atlatls that are a little bit more you know, historically accurate or just grown up that work better than two by four and some dowels and started competing with the World Atlatl Association in 20... Oh my gosh. Yeah, in 2014 or 2015, I think. Full send on the Adelatl. Full send, full send. Yeah, I got second place at my first competition in the youth division, which was super, yeah, super did. awesome. And I started, uh, it just turns out that the World Atlatl Association hosts one of the largest Atlatl competitions in the country, right outside Las Vegas at Valley of Fire State Park at a place actually called Atlatl Rock. And oh. it was destined to be. Yeah, it's destined. They they hosted this tournament for 20 years. I'd never heard about it. I quickly realized, like, oh, wait a second. I, I found my people here. So uh, I 
became more involved with the events and started kind of putting on my own events in Las Vegas and doing different outreach work. So like the, so Valley Fire State Park does atlatl demonstrations throughout the year, separate from the atlatl tournament that happens. And I kind of said, hey, well, I'm a local. Uh, I can come out and do help you do the demonstrations if you ever needed to. And I started kind of reaching out to uh, high schools or elementary schools and middle schools in Las Vegas and doing some more kind of atlatl presentations or demonstrations for, for school kids. Uh, and sort of really, just really enjoyed that aspect of it. And then continued to compete year after year, about two, I think it was two years ago, um, I was elected to the board of directors for the World Atlatl Association, wow. which was super awesome. And uh, I have held that post. Uh, it's a three-year term, and this is my last year. So I'll run for re-election in the fall. And it's been super, super fun, just kind of putting on different events throughout the Southwest. I've worked with the State Historic Preservation Office and Bureau of Land Management to put on atlatl outreach events uh, in Central Nevada. I've done events obviously at UNLV because it's easy and you know I'm there as a student so it's kind of easy to do events with the Anthropology Society there uh, and then different school events so I don't even know how it happened but schools just started reaching out hey we would love for you to do an atlatl presentation uh, or an experimental archaeology presentation for our fourth graders who are doing a unit on Aww. Native Americans in the Southwest or our second graders who are doing a unit on uh, you know living in the Ice Age or our sixth graders you know et cetera. Et cetera. So. <laughs> I've done, you know, a, a couple dozen of these presentations for various groups throughout the the Southwest, and uh, it's just been really awesome to teach people about this thing that they've never heard of, but without mm -hmm. which, who knows how history would have changed because of how widespread the technology was, and then how derivative mm -hmm. later technology is from the atlatl. So a lot of like the physics concepts in later weapons, like the bow and arrow, for example, which is what most people assume is one of the oldest weapons, despite it being, you know, 20,000 years younger than the atlatl is. And and it kind of blows your mind. You realize, oh, wait a second. A lot of the, the physics principles and the design and the engineering of the bow and arrow may not have been the same if it weren't for the tinkering that humans did with the atlatl beforehand. Uh, things like propelling projectiles from behind the center of gravity. Things like having a flexible shaft in order to store or dissipate energy in a specific way. Uh, things like that come from the atlatl and then kind of get pushed into other weapons and technology uh, later, later in history. So it's a really, really interesting, I think, jumping off point for people to have a kind of a different perspective on the past and how people lived in the past. And it kind of opens their mind up to, again, the genius of the, our hominid ancestors who came up with some of these incredible pieces of technology. Wow. I'm inspired. I want to go throw an atlatl now. <laughs> are they difficult to operate? They, I don't think they're that difficult. So I've taught multiple classes of second graders how to throw an atlatl. <laughs> and I feel like if you can teach a second grader something, you can teach anybody something. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and I feel like like second grade is kind of at that at that point where any younger, they probably wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, it's probably the earliest age that they'd probably be able to to pull it off. It's not that difficult. There, it does take some fine motor skills with your fingers, but if you have somebody to kind of help you along and, and show you the right way to hold it, everything else about it is very intuitive. It's very much like throwing a baseball. Uh, it's it's not too dissimilar. It uses a lot of 
what really works about the human shoulder and arm muscles uh, in the best way possible in a way that hand throwing a spear or javelin doesn't uh, doesn't actually work. Uh, I think I just explained that terribly, but <laughs> let me try to really try to rephrase that. I think using or throwing in that lateral is way more intuitive and works with our natural biomechanics better than hand throwing a spear or javelin uh, javelin would. So it, it really does kind of make a lot a lot of sense why this technology was used and so widespread because it's pretty simple works builds on biomechanical principles that like our body's already good at doing like throwing a baseball uh, and just adds simple machines to the to the the process in order to, to launch this projectile way way further than you could by hand it's it really incredible the distance and power uh, gain that you get from using an atlatl versus almost any other hand-thrown weapon. What is the distance? Uh, so at, at lateral competitions, we do five throws. So at a, like official, what we call ISAC competitions, which stands for International Standard Accuracy Competition. It's a standard set of rules and targets that the World Atlatl Association developed in the 90s in order to have standardized tournaments around the world and compare scores worldwide. And the way that the ISAC works is it's five throws from 15 meters and then five throws from 20 meters at a target that's about four feet by four feet. And people at the top end of the competitive range, people who are really, really serious about this outlet also and are very good, can nail about a six inch diameter target at 20 meters with almost 100% accuracy. It's, it's quite incredible. Uh, and they can even go probably back as far as 25 meters, I would put as the maximum effective range wow. of an atlatl based on lots of data points at competitions uh, that have happened in the last 20 years. So even beyond that, even the top throwers aren't able to reliably hit a target in a way that they would be comfortable, for example, hunting with, because that's what you need to think about when you're talking mm -hmm. about weapons. Is, is this effective range? At what distance would you be comfortable using this weapon to get a lethal hit on a target. And and yeah, I think 25 meters would be about the maximum for net lateral. Obviously, if you had a bigger target like a mammoth, you probably could step, step back a little bit further. And mm -hmm. we have historical evidence during the conquest of Tenochtitlan uh, by the Spaniards in 1519 and 1521, that Aztec warriors would launch at laterals from up to 100 meters away uh, as like a volley before the, the rush. Uh, so wow. they're very versatile. They can be kind of pinpoint weapons at shorter distances, or you can just launch it. Uh, the, the the world record for longest at lateral throw is using modern materials, so using like carbon fiber darts and, and stuff like that, uh, is 273 meters. And the world record for for traditional materials and equipment, like all wooden or cane materials, is I, if I remember correctly, it's 183 meters, which is still incredibly impressive. Uh, it's almost two full football fields uh, with a dart traveling upwards of 85 miles an hour. Was that from the ground or from above? Was it just like a flat throw? Uh, well, an angled trajectory from the ground, but with a 45 degree trajectory. Wow. And th those are for both of those throws. So yeah, but with even with modern materials, 273 meters, that's almost 900 feet, uh, almost three football fields, which is absolutely insane to think about. We'll be back after this break. <laughs> 
Were there any other sort of accounts like the one from 1519, just saying the sheer distance or what they were being used for as they did in that text? Or was it from a text? I'm sorry. Yes, it's from, uh, I, I can't list the exact text that it's from, but it was from a text written from by one of the conquistadors, I believe, if I remember, mm-hmm. or if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, I don't remember exactly what text, but the Atlatl comes up quite a bit because it was a weapon that the Spanish didn't really like have an, any sort of frame of reference for. Um, the the Aztec used bow and arrows as well, and they're mm-hmm. one of the few uh, cultures that would use both the Atlatl and the bow side by side. And obviously the Spanish knew what a bow and arrow was, but the Atlatl, they had no, again, no frame of reference, they didn't even know how to translate it or what to call it. Uh, in fact, they're one of the first academic texts ever written about Atlatls was written by an archaeologist called Delia Natal, and she wrote it in 1891. And it's a linguistic, it's, it's mostly a linguistic study of the terrible tra- uh, mistranslations that have happened with <laughs> At Laddle because the Spanish had no word for it. Like they didn't know what to call it. Um, so mm-hmm. she actually dove through all these codices and then all of these Spanish written texts and diaries from uh, from the, the conquest years and kind of put together, um, oh, when this person says crochet hook, what they actually mean is an atlatl because of like XYZ reasons. Oh my God. So it's really Whoa. incredible. I mean, it, it was like yeah. I said, it was one of the first ever publications that was entirely dedicated to like an academic review of atlatls, specifically, yeah. yeah, comprehensive, specifically um, Mexican atlatls, and it's kind of like the foundational text for a lot of atlatl study. Uh, even though it's not super well known anymore because it's so old, I think it was really incredible, especially for its time, uh, and you know, considering how uncommon it was for women to be working archaeologists in the 1890s uh it was really just an incredible incredible work you can still find it online uh and yeah it's something i reference a lot because it has a lot of information that's still relevant to to today in our modern understanding of the linguistic history of atlatls and and the iconography of atlatls as well uh and its depictions throughout mesoamerican artwork so it's really really interesting interesting stuff i don't know of any other texts besides besides these that discuss atlatls in use because so much of atlatl use happened before written language. So it's generally accepted that most of Eurasia stopped using atlatls around 15,000 BCE. So, and that's kind of when they switched over into the bow and arrow more widespread. So it's kind of hard because the only places that continue to use atlatls into, you know, a quote unquote historical era that has written records would be the Mesoamerican cultures, uh, Aboriginal groups in Australia who use what they called the Wumra, which is the same technology just in their language, Wumra, uh, to hunt kangaroo uh, up until European contact. And then uh, various groups in the Pacific Northwest and Arctic Circle used versions of atlatls uh, to hunt waterfowl and to hunt seal and whales. So they use it as an aquatic weapon versus a terrestrial weapon, but it's the same same concept. Um, so yeah, there's not too many written records of, you know, people in history using atlatls just because 
again, so much of it was used before written history existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it it definitely makes sense that there's just not that much. <laughs> yeah, and, and what's interesting is that while they stopped using the atlatl in the way that we think about it, various groups during the end of the Greek kind of empire with Alexander the Great and into the early Roman, Roman control of the Mediterranean, they used a similar weapon uh, called an amentum, if I remember correctly. And it's, it uses similar concepts of an atlatl, but it's not uh, an atlatl. It's, it's a leather strap that they wrapped around their javelins. And then they would use the leather strap to launch the javelins. Uh, and because the leather strap acts as a lever and because they would attach these straps behind the center of gravity, it works on identical physics principles as an atlatl. But instead of being this kind of separate tool that you hold and use to launch your spear, um, it's actually permanently or semi-permanently attached to the spear itself and used to launch the spear. Launch it with it. Yeah, launch it with it. And and then later during uh, different medieval era, uh, during the medieval era, there was like this, these weapons called throwing darts or throwing javelins uh, or fletched javelins, kind of various names for them. And they were pretty similar. They were, um, while javelins usually do not have fletchings or feathers, these did in order to assist their launch uh, with the use of a similar type cord uh, or atlatl type thing. But yeah, big gaps in its use in eras with, with recorded history. That's so interesting because I hadn't, I didn't realize how widespread it was. I had only heard Mesoamerican uses for it in passing in that one history class that I had one time. You know, <laughs> like I, I didn't realize how widespread it was around the world. Yeah, it's one of the most universal weapon systems uh, invented. Uh, Well, virtually every single group had it at some point. We we don't have archaeological evidence of that lateral use in the African continent. Uh, It's the only place where we don't have concrete evidence. Mm. Uh, I have to imagine, I mean, obviously we know in archaeology there's so much that's not going to survive the archaeological record. And in so many parts of the world, the archaeological evidence we do have of that lateral use is uh, so fragmentary. Um, for example, like the oldest atlatl, like intact atlatl that's been excavated dates to only about 17,500 years. Uh, but we have other like circumstantial evidence that their use goes back as far back as about 45,000 years. So there's a lot of gaps in the archaeological record because we're dealing with stuff that happened, you know, so long ago. and and that makes it really hard to do some atlatl study. And, and the reason atlatls are so associated with Mesoamerica and I guess the Americas in general is partially because of their you know, extended use past every other culture um, into the contact periods, but also because the desert areas of like the American Southwest and the deserts, the Sonoran and Chihuahuan deserts of Northern Mexico have preserved more atlatl artifacts than um, most places elsewhere in the world. So the most, some of the most intact atlatls at ever excavated come from, from Nevada and Arizona and North Mexico. Um, and these are particularly what we call basket maker atlatls because they were they used uh, during the basket maker two period, uh, which is a kind of pre-Puebloan hunter-gatherer uh, groups that lived in the American Southwest. Uh, and they had a specific style of atlatl with these two finger loops and recessed spur uh, that through shorter willow darts generally 
that's very, very unique and specific to that part, this part of the world and that time period. So uh, they get called basket maker atlatls, and we've excavate, excavated quite a few of them in comparison to atlatls excavated in other parts of the world. Uh, just again, because the conditions here are really, really great for preservation of things like wood and leather. It's like, what are the odds that you read this book and like there's only one sentence about an atlatl, and then you happen to live in the most preserved area, the most area that's preserved for atlatl? It Nuts. really is and then wild. it becomes <laughs> your life. It becomes yeah. my life. And, and I, like I said, there's a place at Valley of Fire called Atlatl Rock, and it's just an hour away from my house, basically. Uh, and, it's, and it's called Atlatl Rock because it's this incredible desert Aztec sandstone cliff face that has Atlatl petroglyphs all over. And it's so incredible. It almost looks like they held up an Atlatl and traced it onto the wall. Uh, and it's a basket maker style atlatl that's depicted. It's basket maker style atlatl parts and artifacts that have been excavated in the area. Um, and it's just really cool to have this connection so close to home uh, with, with atlatls. And again, they were so widespread uh, in this area for, for such a long time. It's, it's kind of really, really awesome just to have that connection. It's like, did the, did you choose the Adelaide life or did the Adelaide life choose you? <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you. <laughs> exactly. And, and you'd think that uh, with that proximity and such a rich history of Atlatls in this area, there might be more people interested in Atlatls, especially considering that Valley of Fire and Atlatl Rock is the most visited part of Valley of Fire. Uh, but I was so surprised to learn when I joined the World Atlatl Association that I was one of a, a very small number, like maybe two or three total atlatl throwers that even lived in the state of Nevada. Um, and, and, and most of the people that competed at these events flew in from all over the country and occasionally all over the world uh, to compete because this Valley of Fire tournament happens to be pretty big and prestigious when it comes to tournaments that happen year after year in the association. So that's one of the things that pushed me to do all of these outreach events that I've been doing is to kind of develop more of an atlatl community in the Southwest. Uh, because if we're going to host some of the largest tournaments, we might as well have some participants actually represent this part of the world. I want to join. <laughs> yeah. And, and the cool thing is like atlatls are really easy to make too. So I'm able to kind of get people in just like, Hey, you just need two by four and some towels. And most people are hooked after they, after their first throw. I was, I mean, my friend who's an engineer, nothing to do with archaeology. He found your episode in the Ologies podcast and uh -huh. he created the Adelatl and it was like on his Instagram and he was like throwing it. And when we featured your post on Instagram, he messaged me being like, oh, it's Angelo, this and that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to be interviewing him for our next episode. And he was saying, oh, if you want to throw an Adelatl, just come on over. And so, <laughs> <laughs> he's just so excited. And he was just so enthralled about this whole idea. I think he was part of a Zoom Adelatl making workshop that I hosted with Ology fans after the episode came out, potentially. That would make sense. Yes. Cute. Uh, <laughs> do, do you mind me asking his name? Because I kind of remember. His who name is Jacob was. Boyer. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's who I thought yeah. it was. The second you said, I was like, I think she's talking about Jacob. Yeah, Jacob's yeah. great. And I've kind of, he did really well with the Atlatl stuff and took, took to it uh, immediately, which is super awesome. And, and that's another thing. I did this kind of crazy Zoom uh atlatl making workshop it was like four hours uh in early fall and it was just a lot of fun and i kind of taught people how to make this like rudimentary atlatl that they could do uh and safely throw and you know in their backyard basically and 
and drew up some, you know, kind of grew some interest that way. And um, I even made that ladle. I make that ladles when I'm on excavations too, or at least I try to, because uh, you know we have some downtime at camp at night or on off days. So I was like, oh, might as well try to make an ladle or bring an ladle. Depends on if it's possible to do. Uh, obviously, what I'm doing excavations here in the states it's easier to just bring that ladles with me but when i'm doing something internationally it's going to be <laughs> mm-hmm. a little bit more difficult to get those on <laughs> like what is this <laughs> yeah going through customs uh what excuse um, me sir what do you have here <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm actually i mean with all those at competitors that fly in from all over the country for the tournament i've always wondered what they like how they they fly, but I guess they, they said they check it out under archery equipment with the airlines and it, it can get through. So that makes sense. Yeah, good to know, I guess. How did the workshop like what did you do for the workshop where it was online and you were still able to show materials and stuff? How how was that set up? So I typed out a like a fifteen page guide ahead of time that listed all the materials and tools somebody would need. And I tried to, I mean, there's so many different designs for atlatls and so many different ways to make atlatls. Um, I had to think, first thing I did was think for like a week, okay, what is the easiest uh, easiest design of an atlatl and dark to make that requires the least amount of specialty material? Like I want this to be as accessible to people as possible. I don't want to make them go out and buy you know, oh, you need to buy all these specialty chisels, you know, you need to buy the specialty, whatever, whatever to make this. So I really thought long and hard, okay, if I just had like a pocket knife and a hand saw and some sandpaper, you know, would I be able to make an atlatl? Mm-hmm. Kind of tinkered with the design for a little bit. And then I wrote out this long document that kind of said, okay, here are the tools we need, the materials, had people purchase that ahead of time. And then for the Zoom, uh, I was able to kind of have all the materials ready and say, okay, you're going to take your one inch diameter dowel, you're gonna cut it to this length and here's what you're gonna look for when you're carving your notch. And I kind of would draw it in and basically make it along with the participants throughout the entire Zoom. Uh, And, you know, considering that I probably made, I don't know, two or three dozen atlatls in like 150 atlatl darts in my lifetime, I was able to do it very quickly and kind of quickly demonstrate and then let them kind of do it on their own and check in with them over to the camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how it worked. Slow progress, but we got through it. And like I said, it's a pretty, I picked a, the, the easiest design possible, knowing that it was going to be you know accomplishable for most people. Uh, and it went really well. Everybody had a working at Laddle by the end of this three or four hour workshop. And I had them all send in videos of, of them throwing and it seems like everyone wow. had a good time and was pretty successful. So it was a pretty, pretty awesome event. That's so amazing what you can do in a virtual course, like little workshop like that, as well as an in-person workshop. And yeah, yeah, for sure. Just the accessibility of it all as well. It's amazing. Honestly, the pandemic has kind of opened up the world to digital workplaces more. And after I was on the Ologies podcast, I started getting messages from school teachers like k-12 through school teacher teachers all over the country who said oh would you be able to do your atlatl presentation that you do with elementary school kids over zoom and i had to think like how would i do that i mean obviously i wasn't able to actually have the kids throw the atlatl over zoom that's impossible but i was able to adapt a lot of my normal presentation uh into a zoom format and 
on top of doing, you know, my normal in-person events that I do every year, um, I was able to add like a half dozen Zoom events with, with K through 12 groups all over the country uh, and have, you know, a little PowerPoint and hold up stuff to the camera so they could see and share videos and slow motion footage so they could kind of experience it. And it's been really awesome to adapt these presentations to reach a wider audience. And I'm happy to do it because again, I just want more people to know about this kind of stuff and have a appreciation for the past and, and the technology of the past. And hopefully that inspires them to research it further. And, you know, m- my thought is if I tell a thousand people about laddles and I can get a hundred of them to research it more later, and then 10 of those hundred to actually make an outladdle and try to throw it themselves, and five of those 10 to show up for that ladle competition, then I have succeeded. So that, that's my goal with all these events. Oh, that's, that's incredible. What would you have to say? Because you were saying that you want to do more outreach. Like what's, that's like the, like you're good with that, but what else are you seeing that you can do with outreach and kind of, do you have any thoughts of like YouTube channels or any other sort of stuff like that? Too? Yeah. Yeah. I've thought about, I thought about something like a YouTube channel. Uh, I Doing that kind of stuff requires a lot of of effort that I'm not able to put in right now just because of the time constraints of being uh, a full-time student who also works various jobs part-time. So I've thought about stuff like that. It's just kind of would be hard. I'm kind of a one-man operation and, and I don't really have a lot of experience with video or cameras or editing software and stuff like that. So potentially in the future, if I got to a point where I maybe was just working and wasn't doing work and school at the same time, then I could have time to dedicate towards some sort of like experimental archaeology YouTube channel or an outlatal YouTube channel, uh, some, something where I could post flint mapping videos or slings or cordage or atlatls and stuff like that, uh, potentially, but, but not nothing that I can come up with right now. I've just been, just been trying to keep an active Instagram presence because uh, I had an influx of followers after the Ologies episode and want to keep those people engaged in the world of atlatls and archaeology and hopefully can in the future do more. But I think uh, the in-person stuff has the biggest effect. I think uh, for me, I would rather do an in-person workshop with 50 people than have 5,000 people watch a YouTube video because at least I'm guaranteeing that those 50 people are actually throwing in that ladle and having that experience. I think you should make a TikTok. <laughs> I bet you would be so popular on TikTok. Oh my like gosh, just Atlattle. do like a 60 second of you like whittling your atlatl or like throwing it. Oh, that would <laughs> blow up so big. Oh, that's not a bad Atlattle idea. Atlatl, yeah, yeah, Atlatl talk. Don't need a lot of editing. You just use your phone. Adelangelo, that's such yeah, a good that's tag. Yeah, that's a oh, good idea. A good uh, yeah, I might have to look into that. I, I do not have TikTok. <laughs> I, uh, my sister has trap. TikTok. I'm sure she could show me how to use it. But uh, oh, that's, she that's could even film idea. you. She could, yeah. Oh, well, oh, she's away at college now. Uh, if I had this idea <laughs> when she was home, maybe. But yeah, I uh, that's, TikTok makes sense because it's less editing, less kind of commitment mm-hmm. than YouTube for sure. So. Yeah, there's a lot more just like raw video on there of people just doing their thing. So I think that'd be a great like low commitment platform you could do digitally. 
I keep thinking about wanting to do like a flip napping Twitch stream where you can just tune in and watch me flip nap real time. And I think doing that would like force me to practice flip napping more. But also because I am in the grand scheme of life, a novice flip napper, like if you put me, if you transported me back like 40,000 years, I would probably be the worst flip napper in the tribe. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think if, if I had a Twitch stream, maybe my progress could be tracked through video. And Definitely. I think that might be cool, if, you know, over the course of a year, if I do one flint napping stream a week, see how my progress goes from beginning to end. Wow. Yeah, do it. And then you can take the clips from your Twitch stream and put them on TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, honestly. Alyssa just really wants you on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had this thought, I was having this conversation with, uh, with a friend today about how Twitch streamers are like the ultimate content creators. They're the epitome of make once, profit twice. So they'll stream yes. something, have pay somebody to clip the best parts of the stream into a YouTube video where they're monetizing that as well. Then they create a Reddit for their fans to make memes about the videos and they make streams reacting to the memes. It's like- This could be you, Angelo. I know, it could be, it could be. If I just- <laughs> I can see Yeah, full, full committal. Uh, Mom and dad, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to become a full-time Twitch, but not being Twitch streamer. Here's my PayPal. It's in the description. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just do pay- Patreon, PayPal, Venmo. Let's, yeah. Let's do this. There's one, Coffee. I think mainly, like, artists use that and animators. Yeah, I don't yeah. really know. Like, Coffee. Um yeah, but having like a title being like archaeologist flint napping, people are going to be like, what? And then they'll flock to your stream, go in the comments where you can engage with them there as well <laughs> yeah, as you're yeah. like, oh, I'm just ca- casually flint napping. <laughs> like you do. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. you know. It's just a normal thing. And that's the thing I thought about because, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't really, I'm not a Twitch person. Like, I, I don't watch Twitch, but I can't imagine that there's anybody else doing flint napping streams on Twitch. So, I would corner that market for sure. I'm just thinking about like how many hours I've spent watching that one guy who like builds the huts in the middle of the woods, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there's definitely an audience for just like mundane experimental archaeology. And what's crazy about his his video, uh, well, what's the name of his channel? Primitive Primitive Technology is the name of his channel. Yes. What's crazy is that like, I mean, he has probably... 300 hours of footage on YouTube and he doesn't speak a single word in any of it. It's completely (laughs) silent. Just a camera of a guy in blue cargo shorts with no shirt, just making stuff. It's incredible. I think, if I I think he's Australian or something like that. Yeah. His, his story is kind of crazy because he had, he doesn't actually have a background in like archeology. span He kind of is just doing this for fun and research and then realized, Hey, I can just make some videos. Which is amazing in and of itself. (laughs) So yeah, Yeah. I I just like doing this. Yeah, yeah, he he had like a friend help purchase some land that he was allowed to just do all these experiments on and do all these project large scale projects that you wouldn't be able to do unless you, you know, had access to land that you could construct on and do crazy stuff. Yeah, there's he actually himself he has an atlatl video. He he's made atlatl bone arrow sling like a few other stuff. Uh, does pretty well with them. He's pretty he's very impressive. Definitely very impressive. He should turn that piece of land into like an amusement park type thing, you know, like museum people go. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, that would be (laughs) the coolest thing to have a complete, like almost similar to what, what CMAC and the year center do 
if you'd like turn that in open to the public and have a living museum, I mean, I know living museums are things that exist, uh, but like you have a living museum for experimental archaeology where, where museum guests can both watch and try variety of experimental archaeological activities throughout various points in history. I think that's a great idea. Sounds like something also, you should do. Andy. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, maybe one day. Disneyland who? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, who wants to go to Disneyland with all those? Yeah, when you can go to Adelaide for sure. Yeah, Adelaide Land. Adelaide Angelo. <laughs> Feels like a tongue twister, it. but it's just your tongue is just like flopping around. You no, know, it sounds like it already exists. To be honest, yeah, meant to be. Yeah, meant to be. Meant to be. And we will be back after this break. <laughs> so you mentioned so Adelaide flint napping. What else do you like to construct or what what's like your dream piece to create? Uh, oh, dream piece. If that to question create. made sense at all. <laughs> well, so I've been tr- trying to I've been, I've been thinking about making a Balearic style sling uh, for a very long time now. So uh, a bel- so sling is like, you know, the thing David and David used to kill Goliath or whatever. Uh, but there's this area in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. called the Balearic Islands. It's a territory of Spain. And for, it's, first of all, the only, uh, I can, actually, it's an independent autonomous polity, but it's technically part of Spain somehow. Um, but they do have their own kind of independent government system. But it's these islands in the Mediterranean who have had slinging as their national sport for the last like 3,000 years. Uh, it's the only country where slinging is a sport. They mandate slinging as part of like elementary education, like to pass fourth grade, you have to learn how to sling. Uh, and there are ancient Greek writers and historians who have, who theorized that the Balearic people must have invented slings because they're so good at slinging. Like they're, they're a level of, they're so good at slinging. It was almost incomparable to anything else any other part of the world was doing. And I don't really, I haven't done enough research to figure out why these islands just went full send on slinging. Um, but they developed this very specific style of short split strand uh, sling that not many other people or places in the world create. And they just practiced until they had sniper level accuracy. And they would... Uh, be hired as mercenaries in various ancient armies because like they're like oh we, ha- we have a perfect thousand man sling unit ready for hire so uh yeah they were written about extensively throughout history and then they've kept that up and it's part of their national their modern national identity they, they host uh slinging competitions and it's just a huge part of the culture over there um even in like a touristy area, you can go on like tours and they have slingers talk about ancient sling battles that have happened on the islands. Like it's super interesting, but um, the, yeah, their style of sling is just so unique and so incredible. I've, I've always wanted to make one. Uh, what's cool about it is that they taper the release knot so that it cracks like a whip when you throw it, which almost adds to this kind of intimidation factor because it's like a double hit. So when they release it, it I mean, literally loud gunshot like, you know, whip crack, and then the projectiles traveling at what from like forty-three or thirty-four meters a second or something, and going through somebody's skull. It's pretty, pretty wild, pretty incredible. Um, and that's one thing. Slings very underrated weapon uh, in 
I, I Malcolm Gladwell had a book called David and Goliath where he opens uh, the book discussing the David and Goliath story. And his kind of thesis about this book is that, oh, maybe, you know, we assumed David is the underdog, but maybe David wasn't the underdog. And he cites this one study that says that uh, a, like a golf ball sized stone leaving a sling has the same impact impact force as a 45 caliber handgun because even though it's traveling slower like the speed with the mass of the stone is incredible so yeah slings are crazy weapons if you thought atlatls could throw far um the world record for a sling throw is 1300 feet yeah it's pretty pretty terrifying kind of like the og gun especially with that like whip action at the end yeah, exactly, exactly. And I find it interesting that in, in Nahuatl, which is the, the Aztec language, while they called slings tematlatls. So, like, I, there's something to their association with atlatls and slings um, because they have this, the exact same root. So they use slings prominently as well as atlatls, as well as bows. Uh, but, yeah, it's kind of these weapons that utilize leverage are really, really fascinating. And honestly, now that I'm thinking about it in this conversation, I'm realizing that that's basically what all the weapons I'm interested in or all the tools that I'm interested in (laughs) have in common. They all are like leverage based tools. It's like it makes sense why they were used for so long and they've just like been evolved and adapted over the years because it's just like you just throw it. You don't have to even come into contact with anybody. And then you're just like, you dead? You good? Okay, we're good. We're alive (laughs) over here. We're doing great. We got food. Yeah, yeah. I mean, projectile weapons really change the game because you can be far away from dangerous prey. Uh, I, I would not want to go toe to toe, hand to hand with a mammoth, but I will comfortably comfortably stand fifty meters away with an atlatl and launch a obsidian point That's through fair, its side. I guess. How many how many do you think it would take to take down a mammoth? Ah, uh, I am not. I, how many atlatls? Like, like, what's the impact of one atlatl? Okay, so so that we have some information for. The impact is pretty great, and and it's it's hard to measure the exact impact because it's a piercing weapon, right? It's not like a blunt force weapon. But the first of all, you have a large, you know, broadhead point. It's a large chunk of obsidian that's that's spinning through the target as it's going through. There have been some experimental uh, work with archaeologists that have thrown at ladles at bison carcasses and as like an analog kind of to see how how it would react with with actual flesh and bone and um there have been two or three of these specific experiments that have been done in the last year and a half the most notable of which was this guy named ryan gill who actually stalked and hunted an actual living bison using an atlatl with a stone tip and he did this, it was a, it was part of a, he himself is not an archaeologist, he's a primitive weapons enthusiast, but he was kind of contracted out to work with a experimental archaeology researcher at the University of North Texas, if I remember correctly, who helped facilitate the experiment. And he was able to deliver a lethal blow to the bison with the atlatl at like 15-ish meters with just one throw. Uh, he then used a second throw for a quicker, more humane kill. But technically the first throw was, was lethal. And later experiments that have thrown against uh, recently deceased bison, not living bison, but an actual bison that has died and, and they threw at lateral darts at it to see how the darts would interact with the skin and the bones or whatever, have found similarly that you could deliver a lethal blow 
with just one or a lethal hit with just one throw. So it's not going to take two or three people throwing at a bison to take it down. I don't know how a bison, how well of an analog a bison is for a mammoth. So I don't really know how to make that exact determination. But I can imagine that if you can take down a bison with just one throw, you probably doesn't take more than two or three throws to take down a mammoth. Wow. Wow. Yeah. You know, a big kind of debate is where Clovis points, which are those large fluted mm-hmm. points, were those used on atlatls, were those used on thrusting spears or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Various experiments have shown that it is possible to, to have a Clovis point on, like a Clovis point recreation onto an atlatl dart, throw it and still have it function. So those are really large points. So you can just imagine a, a point that large traveling at 80 miles an hour, which is pretty standard for an atlatl throw, um, especially if you're going to try to hunt something, you're going to be throwing pretty much full power. Um, and that traveling at 80 miles an hour is going to cause a lot of damage, even if it's not immediately lethal. You're just tearing a large hole into an animal um, with a very, very sharp material. Um, you know, obsidian and flint are just way sharper than people realize, uh, especially obsidian, which is, which is sharper than, which can be sharper than, than modern even surgical steel. So I think it's totally plausible that, that you could take down a mammoth with just one or two throws, assuming that you place it right. Obviously, if you hit a rib, it's not going to go as well. Um, however, however, I, I actually posted on my Instagram story, like maybe two weeks ago, on one of these these experiments with the atlatl throwing at the bison carcass, the atlatl dart actually embedded itself into the spinal column of the bison so which which honestly i didn't even think was that plausible because i just imagine a relatively brittle you know flint point Mm -hmm. hitting something as strong as like the backbone of a bison and just i can just imagine the flint point just shattering on impact but this flint point just embedded itself uh into the bone and they ended up uh after kind of processing the animal they use beetles to clean off the flesh and leave this perfect bone with this atlatl point sticking into it. And it's like kind of the coolest picture I've ever wow. seen. Uh, so it, it's crazy how much force, even if they, even if you quote unquote miss and you hit a rib bone instead of traveling through the ribs into the vital area, you're potentially breaking a rib with an atlatl throw or at least doing some major damage to, to a bone like that, um, even on a large animal like a bison or a mammoth. So I mean, there's a reason they were used for as long as they were to hunt mammoth, potentially to extinction in North America, because they just are incredibly powerful weapons with a really high success rate, especially with a large animal like that. That's so impressive. I feel like we could talk about this for forever. I know. I want to hear about it for forever, too. (laughs) You definitely have to share with us some of the things you're talking about for Instagram. We would love to share more of your photos or or any record of events you've done, et cetera. Yeah, I'll definitely send some pictures over. Um, and yeah, especially I'll try to find that picture of the, the dart that's in the, the, the bone of the bison. Um, and then maybe even some, some other videos of that lateral throws and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I could, as you mentioned, I could talk about lateral for the next six yes. hours. So it's <laughs> we would love a video of you throwing an atlatl if you have one. That would oh, okay. be incredible. I definitely, definitely have some. I, will <laughs> I share, assume share you that. have plenty. <laughs> you just have to choose the one, or you can send send us several. 
Yeah, I'll send, I, I, I might send I really one or two, especially some slow motion footage as well, because that yes. really allows you to see yes. how the dart flexes in flight, which is such an important Amazing. part of the system and such a misunderstood part of the system as well. Yeah, lateral flex. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, incredible. I yeah, can't wait see to see it. The sheer force <laughs> and momentum and all that fun jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on here today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time uh, talking about my passions and talking at Lattles. I'm, I'm happy to talk at Lattles anytime, anywhere. So this, <laughs> was, this is awesome. Thank you so much. Are there any quick shout outs you want to do before we wrap up? Uh, yes. I, people can find me at I Dig It First on Instagram and Twitter. So that's I-D-I-G-I-T one st i like the numeral one and you can find the world at lateral association at world org, or on instagram at world at lateral association and on the website they have a calendar with events all over the world so you can look and see if there's an event near near you and try to visit we're a nice bunch we usually do a lot of public demos and let the public try out laterals um along with you know, having competitions happen. So if you're interested in learning more, you can check those places out to learn more or reach out to me on Instagram. Amazing. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.